Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode 16. In this week's episode, we covered Deb Perringer's trial testimony. And as it stands right now, that episode is going to be the last episode of Season 8 until uh, we have any other new information that comes out, and then we'll continue to discuss it. Uh, as we get into your questions and we continue on to do with today's episode, we'll explain what's happening with that, what our plan is for the future. In the meantime, I'm joined, as always, by Mike and Zach. Hi, everybody. Hey, guys. And we've got a bunch of your questions and some announcements right after the break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply. All right. To start things off, as usual, Zach, your thoughts on Deb's testimony? Putting everything else aside and just the testimony, she seems pretty guilty to me. Looks bad. It it? looks real bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a real struggle with this. Where we're at right now, I'm glad that we've got uh, a team of listeners that are going to continue on and keep working on it. But yeah, that testimony was, was... was tough, it, but but what's was so perplexing is, you know, when you when you take the all the things that make her look guilty and then contrast it with the fact that it seems like it's impossible time wise for her to be there, it's mm-hmm. just like what doesn't make sense. And her lawyer definitely did not help her. From what it sounds like, he didn't help her at all either. No, and I would love to know what you know what his strategy was. Like if, if her testimony was like, did he lead her into that? I almost got that impression. Because of that sidebar, mm-hmm. you know, where they where they were trying to keep her her police statements out. And so, you know, she goes out because, you, know, you know, I was reading in the episode. You heard me. That was real time. You know, I was I was writing the episode as I was reading. That's why at the beginning I'm like, oh, you heard me. I'm like, they're going to tear her up on cross. Mm-hmm. Like she's literally contradicting every statement she ever made. And then cross comes. And then and before it even begins, Minton and Welch will go to the judge and they're like, well, now we'd like to talk about her testimony or her previous statements. And Bayes says, well, I based my whole trial strategy on the fact that they weren't coming in. 
like what so did you tell her to lie or did you just not care that i mean he had to know mm-hmm. he's seen the, the the record he yeah. knows she's not telling the truth or at least not the same version of whatever story she told before it was just really hard but the, what what was it you, you said that only listening to her testimony made you feel like she was guilty. What what specifically made you feel that way? Just just some of the the changing the changing stories, the the story about the blood, how she just met. You know what I mean? Like, there's no reason it should be there. And then, well, well, it was this. This is the reason. You know what I mean? Right. I understand that she's trying to reconcile why that would be there, mm-hmm. but it just the way it came across. It just sounded like she was making excuses more than anything else. Right, and it did. And, and as I said in the episode, innocent or guilty, she was in a tight spot. And the the thing with the probate book was kind of weird too to me, where they got in later and they said it was there or it wasn't there, but then it was there. And see, I haven't seen in the record where, and we can't just assume that Minton was was being honest with stuff because we know for a fact she wasn't with mm-hmm. some of it. But I hadn't seen anywhere in the record where they had searched her car, and it wasn't there. Okay, on the day of her, you know, maybe that's true. You know, you know, the, the, it's hard to piece things together from the record. But I I always thought that they found it there. When they took photos of her car on the day her parents died. Okay. When they went to talk. And then, but, but according to her, they didn't find that until they, they had the search warrant a few weeks later, which doesn't make much of a difference. But then they're saying, they're saying that they did search the car and it specifically it looked and it wasn't there on the day of the murders. So I, I just don't know what's, what's actually happened there. There are different things bother me about it. So like the things you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, changing, you know, coming up with all these excuses as to you know why her blood was in certain places that actually didn't bother me a bit okay i knew it was going to be problematic mm-hmm. but then you put yourself in that situation like what are you going to do you know like i said i i think that whether she's whether she killed her parents or she didn't i think she was unaware of the fact that she was bleeding on the house okay you know it, it, assuming that is you know all mm-hmm. things on the up and up that's her blood yeah i think that if she was if she killed them and she was bleeding she would have cleaned it up okay or given reasons to police prior to about why her, you know, oh, I cut my finger, mm. you know, the fact that she never says anything that there would be any reason for her blood to be there to me. I mean, it, it, it could be an indicator, almost like the um, the nap thing we talked about a couple weeks ago that, you know, maybe she really, truly is innocent. And it just didn't even occur to her that they would give a shit about her finger because she didn't know there was blood on the scene. Or it could just be she knew she cut her finger during the commission of the murders or whatever. But she didn't realize she bled on the scene. And see, that's what it sounded like more to me was that's the way I took it more was she first didn't realize that her blood was there. Like you said, she didn't realize at all that her blood was there. Mm -hmm. But then the way it sounds to me is she's trying to cover why her blood would be there. Right. And yeah, and that's the part, like I said, it honestly is doesn't bother me. She's lying under oath, I think, very clearly, Mm -hmm. which does bother me. But but the the reason for do it doesn't it doesn't make me feel like she's guilty because that again, innocent or guilty, that's the position she's put herself in because i think that again whether she did it or not mm-hmm. her statements to police she didn't think her blood was there she and so she gives these statements and actually says at least you know, we don't have a recorded interview but according to the detective's notes that she she said which by the way she did deny on the stand that she ever said it she she doesn't remember saying that but in hardy's notes it says that she told him there's no reason for her blood to be on the scene so then she finds out oh well your blood is on the scene so again, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You can either double down and say and try to, you know, who are you going to believe me or your own eyes, and tell the jury, nope, my blood's not there, it can't be there. There's no reason for it to be there, or you've got to come up with an innocuous reason for it to be there. Otherwise, the the obvious conclusion is that it's there because you killed your parents. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't like it's wrong. It shouldn't happen. 
And and I think I don't think she is trustworthy because of it and for other reasons, too. But I can completely understand. I think whether she was innocent or guilty, she was going to make up a reason for her blood to be there. So that's not the stuff that bothered me. The stuff that bothered me were little things like the probate book Mm -hmm. you were talking about. The probate book being her car doesn't bother me. What bothers me was when you read the testimony and her back and forth with with the prosecutor about the probate book. You know, she says that, uh, well, it wasn't here and then it was there. And when she says, are you and it's still your testimony that you that your mother gave you that book and not that you bought it new right before. Mm -hmm. And she said something to the effect of it's as far as I know or or as far as I can remember or something like that. Mm hmm. Though, you know, just kind of reading, the, studying the linguistics of it, that jumped out of me as red flag. Okay. Because if you knew with 100% surety that your mother gave you that book and somebody says, it's still your testimony, the, the response you would expect, and again, this is reading tea leaves to an extent, but the response that I would expect is, no, my mother gave me that book. Mm-hmm. There's no question she gave it to me. You're wrong. You're lying. You know, as opposed to as soon as she, as soon as Minton suggested, put it in her head that maybe they had evidence to the contrary. And when she's like, so it's still your testimony that your mother gave you that book and not that you purchased it new. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, that's, that's an indicator like, oh, there may be something coming. Okay. Conflicting with this. She says, oh, as far as I know, as far as I can remember, mm-hmm. she backs off of her, her statement. That's concerning. The other thing that, that's concerning to me, that was a big concern to me, go ahead. I was going to, if you're bringing up the pillows. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, because yeah. that was a big one, too, for me, was, was her changing the story on that, saying that she put the pillows in the car and left, but then immediately, or I don't want to say immediately, but, but turns around and then says she talked to her parents for a while after that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's a huge story twist. Yeah. Wait, say that again. That she put him in a car and then she said, because she said she left after that. Yeah, that's what I said. She she says that she put him in her car and left. Right. But then later she talks about staying there and talking for a while. Right. But I assume that I, I always, I assumed from that part of the testimony that she meant that that was, that all, the talking all occurred before she took the pillows to the car. But in either case, when she took something out there, mm-hmm. and that's why I, I kind of mentioned in the, in the episode that it was like, it doesn't bother me that when when times are wrong i think it was eight i think it was 10 you know months go by year goes by that stuff doesn't bother me but the sequence of events does you know so when she's like no i took the pillows out to the car and then i left mm-hmm. and she's trying to line that up with what mabel zabo saw which was at 10 15 mm-hmm. except for that's impossible because her mom wasn't even home yet her mom was still across town at 10 15 that that's an issue but but what got me more about that wasn't the sequence what immediately threw up red flags to me was the inclusions of the pillows at all. Okay. So now we have, we know the killer left with presumably a trash bag liner Mm -hmm. containing some evidence, including like the pan, pot and pan lids and things like that. So, and the, and the bag liner is missing. So we're, we're assuming that maybe it was all put in the bag, but at least that stuff was taken out. And she knows that Mabel saw her Mm -hmm. at some point. Then all of a sudden out of nowhere, we've never heard about these pillows. I went there to get, con- even in her direct testimony, I went to get concert tickets and, or, or actually it was in her direct testimony, but in all of her statements and her previous testimony, I went to get concert tickets and the receipt for the trees. I had a conversation. I left. And then all of a sudden she says, 
oh, when I walked out to the car, as soon as they mentioned Mabel's testimony, I was carrying pillows out to my car. Mm-hmm. It's like all of a sudden now that she knows someone saw her walking to her car, we get this addition of I was carrying something. Maybe I don't know if it would be a white pillow, which mm-hmm. is what I have in my mind. I'm thinking a white trash bag or whatever. But also now, oh, and I was carrying pillows. Well, we've never heard a word about pillows. To me, that and, and again, it could be more the same. Just spit, but you know, she just kind of you know trying to spin a, a story to fit everything. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it means nothing. But that more than anything jumped out to me as why is she putting something in her hand when she knows someone saw her go to her car? And the most plausible explanation to me is that she now thinks someone saw her carrying that stuff to her car. So she included something that you know, if it was a trash bag full of evidence. That she could say, no, it was a pillow. I was carrying pillows out. So that that really, that one made me take a step back for sure. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That is that is a big problem in the story. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, I definitely came away from, and we'll get, we'll get to listener questions now, but um, you know, I, I had held off giving my opinion on the podcast because I wanted to be able to really lay out my thoughts here with you. But yeah, reading her trial testimony definitely left me leaning a lot heavily, more heavily towards the guilty side of things. But again, as I said at the beginning, I'm, it, I'm, it's, still, it's still a struggle for two reasons. One, the timeline issues seems, seems to be, be a big, big, big problem. And the other one is motive. I just can't see a motive for her doing it, especially doing it premeditated, which we know whoever did it, it was premeditated because of the note. It just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, there's been some discussion on the fan page where people have said, well, yeah, but she was bipolar, so it could be, you know, in a manic episode of bipolar, she could be, get violent. But that's that's not, you know, people who don't understand what bipolar means have this idea that the person is just, you know, wild and crazy and violent when they're in a manic stage. It's not necessarily the case, and it has never been the case with Deborah. Uh, you know, according to her husband and any family members that were spoken to, no one has literally ever seen Deborah do anything violent. They've never seen her show aggression or violence towards anyone ever. Uh at least nothing that that's that's in the record. So she's not the type of person who when she, you know, was in a manic state became violent. And again, this was premeditated. So it just the the lack of motive and the the timeline make me you know, if I'm looking at those those two things, I'm like, no, she's she's innocent. This just doesn't make sense. But then you add in the, you know, the blood evidence and her trial testimony is like, I don't know, she looks she she looks very guilty after her testimony. And I will say that I absolutely see why the jury convicted after that testimony. And they don't even know as much as we know. Mm-hmm. But the and then also again, as I as I as I said, the it was a dirty trick by the prosecutor when she says, When did you find out that your mother was cutting you out of the will? And that and, and Bayes Bayes should be ashamed of himself for not objecting to that. That was and even if he had, it would be too late. Um, but so you can do the same thing she did with your objection, meaning so you can't ask questions, right? You, you can't get you can only ask questions. You can't make statements to the jury. Mm-hmm. But she made a statement to the jury in her question and put it in their head. And you can't unring that bell. Bayes could have done the same thing with his objection by, by saying objection. That's an improper question. What she just said is not true. There is no evidence of that. It's not in the record. And it is a false statement. And if the judge was like, hey, you, you know, they both get slapped on the hands, but then at least the jury heard both sides. Mm-hmm. But just letting that question stand as it did was was a big mistake. And I think that probably hung her more than some of the issues that, that caught my attention. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, Bob, going through these questions, you guys already answered a bunch of these in your discussion, so I'm going to have to filter through them to find ones you didn't cover. This one comes from Lauren. She wants to know if you've been able to get in contact with Deb's defense attorney during the trial. I haven't, and I, I haven't tried. I've had uh, Allison trying to work on getting in touch with him to see if we can get a hold of the case file, see if there's any materials there that that we don't have. And I think she was still working on that, but no, I haven't reached out to Bayes at all. All right, Sarah's got a couple questions. First, she wants to know, when samples are taken for DNA testing, is more than one sample taken from each spot? How easy or difficult would it be for the wrong samples to be sent accidentally to the lab? Typically, there'll be samples taken from multiple areas. You know, what we saw on the trash can lid is pretty common uh, when I was in the clerk's office and looked at it. Because, you know, the the first set of swabbing you're going to see is for presumptive testing. So what they're trying to do or confirmatory testing, they're trying to determine out, say, this is something that looks like blood. Is it blood? And so what they do, though, is on the piece of evidence, they'll mark. You know, so in that case, they would circle an area, label it spot one, swab it, and then another area, and then and then put that swab in a baggie, and then you know another spot, spot two, so on and so forth. And then if they came back and said, okay, well, swab number five is blood, they'll send that for DNA, and then they have it all can tra- trace it all the way back to know where exactly it came from. Uh, as far as blood evidence like that getting mixed up, there are all kinds of checks and balance put in place so that that doesn't happen. Doesn't mean that it doesn't. But it should be nearly impossible through the through the procedures. You know, they only bag one piece of evidence at a time. It's you know they're they're sealed and labeled and numbered. So of course mistakes can happen, malfeasance can happen. But but there are protocols in place so that you don't get because that's a huge deal getting evidence like that mixed up. Next, she says, in your experience, how many false convictions start with the judgment that the suspect isn't behaving the way they should be behaving? I don't think I don't know that that's something you can put a number on. We see it a lot. It's a it's a common tactic used by prosecutors. You know, even not just cases we've covered, but you know, watch twenty twenty sometime, or you know, watch watch you know the true crime shows on oxygen, and you see this stuff presented as evidence, especially shows like Snapped or Women Behind Bars or something like that, where they'll look like you know you'll, you'll always see the detective saying, "Oh, well, she wasn't crying or she was crying, but I didn't see tears," or you know, it, so it, I think it is. Some of it is grasping at straws when you have a weak case trying to come up with evidence when you don't have any. You know, it's something that, that may pull on the heartstrings of a jury, and it's a, it's a common tactic. And sometimes I think that a, a suspect can get narrowed in on because of things like this, and it's just human nature. You know, you just get a gut feeling about somebody. You know, I come and say, Zach, I want to, you know, I need to inform you so-and-so is dead, and then you react in a certain way, and I'm like, that seems suspicious. 
So I think some of that's human nature, and I also don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It becomes wrong when that becomes tunnel vision. And whether Deb Perringer committed this crime or she didn't, it, I've said it for a long time, Matt, Detective Matt Hardy had absolute tunnel vision. He locked into her and never, you know, we wouldn't have all these questions. This wouldn't be a controversial case if he had fully investigated the case instead of simply investigating Deb Perringer. Um, so that's when it becomes a problem is when basically you become, you know, a detective becomes obsessed with that and gets locked in with tunnel vision because of that reaction and they don't look elsewhere. Well, and I think people with training such as yourself would see through that line, see through the line of they didn't act the way they should have. Right. But a lay person that's on the jury, like myself, would go up there. And if an expert or slash professional told me this person didn't act the way she should have. Right. I don't know any different. Right. You're assuming, oh, they've seen lots of these before. Yeah. And the thing is, when you get into the real professionals, like guys like Jim Clementi, who right, is, is a human behavior analyst, that's mm-hmm. what he does. That's his expertise. So you think, oh, they can really pick anybody apart. Mm-hmm. But he's the one that would tell you none of it means anything until you can establish a baseline. Like, have you ever seen how this person reacted in tragedies before? Is their common reaction to just stare off into space and get sick to their stomach? Or are they normally big criers and there's something different? You know, so and, and these these officers, the victim assistance coordinator, all those people, they have no baseline with Deb. They don't mm-hmm. know what, and they also didn't know the mitigating circumstances. You know, they don't know what her mental conditions are. They don't know what kind of medication she's on. So making a judgment like that is just, it's, it's unfair. And then it gets, and then it gets, you know, presented to a jury that way. And it's, it's surprisingly effective, you know, when, when you, when you don't have this smoking gun evidence to be able to say, I went and told her her parents were killed, who she says is her soulmate. And she was, acting like she was crying, but there were no tears. You know, so basically telling the, the, the jury, oh, I went there and she pretended to cry. Mm-hmm. You know, that goes, that goes way, lo- way further than it ever should. Absolutely. Barbara says, does it seem implausible to you that Deb claimed she cleaned up dishes in her parents' sink when Agnes complained in her diary that Deb was a poor housekeeper and her house was a mess? Well, but Agnes also said in her journal that Deb had offered to clean her house for her just a few days before this. You know, so, so there, there's, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think that Deb probably didn't do dishes in the house. I, I, I don't, I think she's lying, to be clear. Could be wrong, but I think she's lying about that. I think she's just trying to account for the evidence that she knows is at the house. Like, I know I keep repeating this over and over again, but I just keep wanting to say whether she's innocent or guilty, that's what she was doing. But as far as the plausibility of it, yeah, I mean, Deb's house was a mess. She's not a good housekeeper, but. You know, we also have in the journal that Deb was just very recently offering to come over and do some cleaning work for Agnes. So it is possible that that happened. And as a matter of fact, you know, she she was she was bipolar and had depression. And what a lot of people don't realize, so so somebody who has depression, you know, and everybody has it different ways. I'm certainly no expert, uh, but I've done some research on this particular topic just because of this recently. And some some of these behaviors don't play out the way you might think they do. So. Oh, she's, you know, she's depressed and so she doesn't clean her house. Well, a lot of times when somebody is suffering from depression, you know, their their negative outlook is generally pointed towards themselves, right? So they don't feel like they're worthy, right? So so I'm not going to clean my house because I'm a piece of trash and it doesn't matter. But that doesn't necessarily move towards other people. It It doesn't factor in when you're looking at somebody else. You might look at mom and be like, but mom is a good person. Why can't I be like mom? And, 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 oh, I want to clean this up for mom because mom deserves it, but I don't. 
Uh, that so, and it's, it's not always that way, but it's just something to think about. Just because she suffered from, you know, whether it's because of depression, bipolarism, or if it's just because of sheer laziness, just because she doesn't clean her house doesn't mean she wouldn't take the extra step to clean her mother's house. And then there's also the 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 factor of someone trying to to create impressions of themselves, right? So in my in my private space in my house, I'm a slob. But I don't want my mom to I, want to, I want to appear to my mother as though I'm a neat housekeeper, so much so that I'm going to clean up her dishes to let her know. I'm not saying any of these things happen, but I'm saying they could happen. So based on that, I, I, no, I, I, don't, I wouldn't be shocked if she did clean some dishes up for her mom. And again, because of the diary, you know, yeah, she said she's a terrible housekeeper, but she also said she had offered to do some cleaning for her. So I just, I just don't think it says one thing or another. I just think that if she had been there and done some dishes, that she would have mentioned it prior. John says, how much of Deb's blood around the house are we talking about? Enough to be visible? If it had been me, I think I would notice after one or two spots and put something back on my finger. Or someone else would have been like, hey, you mind covering that up? You're getting blood everywhere. What do you think? We're not, we're not talking about a lot of blood at all. I mean, you're talking about a, a small smear of blood on the, on the kitchen door, or the, the front of the drawer in the kitchen a small smear of blood on the dining table. Both of those are on dark surfaces. You probably wouldn't see them. And then you have the, uh, the door frame and the mirror. Again, they're small. You can see the, I think I posted the, the picture of the, the blood on the mirror on, the, on our website. So you can see where there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of a smear there. The spot that is the most obvious would be on the door frame, on the white door frame opposite that. You would think that that, that would be noticed, but it wasn't a lot of blood. It wasn't like she was dripping, bleeding all over the place. There's just they're all all spots are transfer spots. Other than I think there was they were described it as a drip on the dining room table. As far as the answering machine, I don't know that that was well. The, the trash can lid were tiny spots, and as far as the answering machine, as I mentioned in the episode, Allison and I were both shocked when we saw that. There's not a single mark on there indicating that that answer that the uh, not answering machine caller ID box. There's not a single mark on there that indicates that any testing whatsoever was done on that. Not to say that they didn't, but it's not consistent with literally every other single piece of evidence where you know they circled and marked where they did the testing, where it came from. This thing looks like it's brand new out of the box. So I don't know how much blood was on there. And we have pictures of that laying on the floor, and you don't see any blood on it. So it's hard to, hard to tell with that. Uh, but yeah, it, was, it wasn't a whole lot of blood. Michael says, why would Minton ask if Deb was right-handed or left-handed? Shouldn't she already know the answer? As the opening question on cross and with no follow-up questions, I'm left with the impression that the prosecution hadn't thoroughly evaluated the case. If Deb committed the murders, wouldn't the injuries occur on her right hand, her dominant hand? It would be nice if things were that cut and dry. As, as far as why the question was asked, no, they probably didn't ask. I mean, clearly the state did all this work on the case and came up with a theory that's absolutely impossible. You know, the state's theory of the case is, is not possible. The, the timing of it, you know, they, they actually write in their, you know, you know, in their, we had Patrick Gass on, on one of the, uh, the TV shows saying that, you know, we think that she was killed around noon. It's, well, we know Deb was gone by noon. You know, their, 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 their theory doesn't make sense to begin with. I think they didn't know the answer to it, or maybe they had an assumption. The reason it was asked is because of exactly what you said. Deb has a cut on her left finger and she's right-handed. And I think that's why there were no further questions. Either I think Minton assumed she was left-handed and she was going to and, and she would take that and spin it into so if you were going to yield a you know wield a weapon you would use your dominant hand wouldn't you and that's where you cut your finger but because Deb said right-handed she just she just moved past it there was no reason to focus on it because she was smart enough to know that 
even though it's not cut and dry, you can't say because the cut's not on her dominant hand that surely she couldn't be the killer. That that not even close to that. Uh, but she knew that's something that that could be raised in in a layperson in the in the jury box could could definitely think was the case. Joe says two of Agnes's friends reported Agnes told them she and Lloyd had been receiving threats. How do we imagine we might get more information about the channel, mail, phone, and nature of the threats? I think it's impossible at this point. I wish it wasn't, but you know the the two people that knew exactly how the threats came in were Agnes and Lloyd. Agnes told a couple friends about it, but didn't give them specifics. And we've already had the the prosecutor on television shows saying there's no evidence that those threats actually occurred. So whether they did or not, he's denying it. And I'm surely there surely there's not records still laying around somewhere that show the threats and the fact that Lloyd worked for the police department. There probably wouldn't be a formal report anyway. I don't think he would call 911 and say somebody's threatened me. He's going to call, you know, Joe, his buddy, who's a sergeant and say, hey, somebody's threatened me. Can you, can you send a patrol officer around here and keep an eye on us? It'll be something more like that. I still find it strange, too, that it wasn't in her prayers. Like we have these this list of written prayers. I do, too. Yeah. And it seems like if that was the case, she would have prayed for safety. Right. But, you know, something along those lines. I, I have two theories on that. One is that we don't have the whole journal. Okay. And and I'm leaning towards that one, you know, because they, as, as I mentioned, they were all out of order. They were stored. You know, the file was saved as in like a separate PDF for each individual page. Okay. And so I think they, there's a, there's a good chance they only took the stuff that really, because if you notice every single entry relates to death mm-hmm. in one way or another, every single one, not one time is she not talking about death. So either that's all she, so she either, and that's the other option is. She only used that to talk about her family, and that was that was just what she did. Or the prosecution only collected and saved and gave us the ones that are talking about her family, and there were more that we didn't see. Pamela says, I'd like to know the reason behind why the state originally wanted to bar Debbie's previous statements from being presented at trial. Maybe you could get an attorney to comment on this, or maybe Allison could give you a cliff note version that you can share with us. You'll have to ask Allison about that, or or maybe some of the attorneys uh, listening here can chime in, and we can talk about it maybe next week's follow up. But yeah, all I could think of is they they made an argument that the statements were hearsay, and I think that the reason for that is because her statements alibi her. So so what the defense didn't know going in, but the state did know, is they have zero witnesses that can put Deb at the house at the time of the murders. Period. Right, so they have no way to counter an argument. If Deb says I left at ten fifteen, they have no way to counter that because they have one witness that started walking to her car at ten fifteen, and then two witnesses that said her car was definitely gone by twelve. So I think that they didn't want to use that as a basis. You know, they they didn't want that. They didn't want it in there. You know, her original handwritten statement or whatever that says she was there, and then she came back, and then she left because it created a problem for them. And when she testified. You know, then she contradicted them, and then they could use them to their advantage. But th- but that that's all I that's all I could think about. But but even with that, as I'm as I'm thinking on my feet here as we're talking, I don't know because you know they they did have her statement to Hardy where she said that there's no reason for her blood to be there. You'd think they would want to use that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why I would have expected maybe a motion in limine from the defense. Because she, you know, she, she, I don't know if she had been Mirandized during during any of these statements or. You know, none of them were recorded. Whatever the whatever the case may be, but the fact that it came from the state is odd. And, and instead of me trying to sit here and 
on the fly and try to figure it out, we should get a lawyer in to, to talk about it. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, our last question comes from Emmett. Is IBDX still going to help Dr. Ambers get the electropharograms? And if not, what's our best course of action to get them? If I were to FOIA a list of all the cases worked by Smitty in a period of time leading up to the murders, how far back should I go? Unless that's something you've already submitted. And while we have this question, it's probably a good time for you to explain, Bob, what we're going to do moving forward. Yeah, so as far as the, the, direct, the answer to your direct question, um, I don't think you'll have any luck with that. You know, it, There are record retention laws in the state of Texas and... Number one, there's no if these cases weren't a murder or there's there's different rules and regulations about how long they have to keep records. But if you're talking about records from 20 years ago, most of those they probably won't have. I think it would be difficult. I'm sure they're not filed in such a way that you know you can look up by fingerprint analyst. They'd be filed by case, you know, by by each case number and case name. Uh, so that'd be difficult. Also, right now the state of Texas isn't producing any open records requests whatsoever. Uh, due to the quarantine lockdown. So it'd be worth a try, I guess, if you just pulled back, you know, five years worth of his caseload. But my guess is you won't get a response from it or you you won't get what you're looking for. You know, they'll tell you we don't have those records or we don't have any way of finding records in that way. We need case numbers, uh, which would also be nearly impossible to find. As far as electropharograms, uh, yeah. So Allison was already had was working trying to get those from GeneScreen or Orchid Cellmark, as it's called now. And I, and I assume she's going to continue pushing for those to get them because in this case, it's not a, a, a huge use of resources from IPTX to continue working down that path because Dr. Ambers has agreed to work on that free of charge. So all Allison has to do is get the, the DNA raw data and then Dr. Ambers will, will analyze, of course, and tell us if there's anything there. So we'll, we'll keep going with that. And, and speaking of keeping going. Uh, we have our plan in place, and it has already been activated uh, to continue working on this. So this is where we're at, and, and I want to explain just a little bit about why exactly we're doing things we're doing. As I said, for now, this is going to be the last episode on the Perringer case, and you know it, we've discussed all the reasons, but in short, you know we, we've got other people that need help, and and Dem's already gone, and there and there's there's. Nothing we can do that's going to be immediately, you know, you know, there'll be a big picture symbolic uh, victory and justice there. And if we could find the person who did it, then obviously we would find justice for Agnes and Lloyd. But I think we're a long way from that. Um, and, and there's still the possibility that Deb is actually the one that committed the crime. You know, is you know, is, you hate to speak 
that way about somebody who's passed on. But I mean, to, to be brutally honest, there's there's a chance that's still the case. And then there's also, you know, from just from a strictly business standpoint for us, you know, we have, you know, as we started talking about this, we got 50-50 people that said, we need to move on. And and then maybe not 50-50, but there's, there's a percentage of people that have said, you know, we need to keep going. And so, you know, if we just keep going on with this, what ends up happening is, you know, half, three quarters of you, two thirds of you stop listening because you're not interested. And that just affects us business-wise for, obvi- for obvious reason. If we don't have the listenership, then then our business needs to keep our numbers up in order to, in order to survive. Sadly, there is, that is the there is a business side to the work that we do here. We have to we have to feed our families too. And so, what we came up with was we have created a private Facebook group. It is called the T and J Piringer Case Discussion. Uh, there's a link to it ta- pinned to the uh, Truth and Justice Podcast fans page where you can link over to it, or you can just search for it. And what we're going to do is shift all case discussions about the Courtney double homicide over to that page. It's being managed by listeners John Hayes and Kimberly Ann Dinger. And, and they may add other admins as well as the, the, the page is already starting to fill up with people that want to discuss it. But what we're doing is we're, we're creating a space where for those of you who are very interested in this case and want to keep going, there's a space for you to do it. But it's also making it so that the rest of you who feel like we need to move on to to another case or to to other projects here that all that discussion about this case isn't clogging up the feed for uh, on the main fan page. And so the way things are work if there are revolution revelations that are that are made by our group, which I'm confident if there's something to be found out, or the the truth and justice army in that group is going to find it. Uh that they will relay that to me and I'll be in the group so I'll be in and out of there sometimes. And then if there's if there's interesting new information that makes a difference, then then we'll discuss that on the main page and I'll discuss it on the podcast as well. So we're so we're not leaving Deb and the Courtney's behind. We're just shifting that over to where we're not producing episodes about it every week. And and the other thing is it, it becomes very difficult to produce these episodes every week anymore. We're reaching the point of the investigation where I want to start doing interviews. I had started writing to Deb and we were going to start digging into the defense, but now a lot of that just isn't an option anymore. So if you want to keep going, go to the TNJ Perringer Case Discussion group on Facebook. Just ask to join. They'll let you in. Uh, John and Kimberly have access to the entire case file in a Google Drive that they are, they are um, sharing with the people that are in that group to continue working on the case. And I'm, I'm really, really excited and encouraged by the fact that so many people are doing it. I look forward to seeing what they find out. Now, as for us. What we're going to do moving forward, as I mentioned, we're going to we were we were going to move on to another case as our main case, and for a, a period of time, I, I had said like a month or so, we're going to discuss we're going to do one off episodes where we'll we'll discuss a case that you all are interested in in each week's episode, and we'll do a follow up and discuss it further with with Mike and Zach. I put up a post asking for case submissions from all of you uh, on the fan page to see you know what cases are you interested in. And we had, I believe, 273 submissions for that. And meanwhile, we're starting with the case that I think is going to be our next case picked out. We got the record from Innocence Project of Texas, started looking at it. Of course, there's a lot missing, specifically things they don't necessarily need, but we need for investigative purposes, which are the police files. And filed open record requests, got the same standard language back from them that the states closed down. They're not doing open records requests. So, 
we're kind of in this bind right now where we don't have a because of the pandemic, we don't have a clear path forward. So I as in the meantime, I started lining up interviews to discuss these other cases. And this is where we're at right now. And we'll see where things go. And we'll see what you guys think about these episodes we're putting together. But as of right now, we are going to produce an episode every week discussing true crime cases that you all are interested in and want to hear about. They don't even have to be wrongful conviction cases. One thing I'm excited about is a lot of time people come to me and say, hey, will you, can you look into this missing persons case or this unsolved case? And they don't fit with the type of show we do for a full season. It's an opportunity for us to, to look into those and discuss them. And I also want to use this time and this platform to help introduce and, and promote other true crime podcasters and content creators that are working on these projects for the same reasons we are, for truth and justice for victims and families and the wrongfully convicted. So what I'm intending to do is every week to bring on a podcast host or a TV host or an author or someone who has worked on these cases to come on and have a conversation with me about these cases that you guys have all told us you're interested in. And we will probably do that at this point, and this may change as soon as something changes as far as the pandemic and lockdown is concerned, but we'll probably continue doing that as long as you guys like it and you're all okay with it through the end of this year at this point. And that's going to do a couple of things. One, it will give me the chance to look into all these cases that I want to explore and hopefully give you guys a new look and a different approach to, to those cases and the, and the way that we're going to format these interviews. It also allows us to get very far ahead, which will give us time so you know we can record enough interviews to fill this year, probably by the middle of October. And then we can use the rest of that time to do a much more thorough, deep dive research into our next case where we'll have time to travel and do interviews and things like that because we'll already have episodes in the can ready to go. And then we'll produce you know, a really kick-ass next season. So as of right now, the plan is season nine of Truth and Justice is going to be a season where we cover the true crime cases that you guys are interested in. And then after the first of the year, and again, this is all subject to change depending on what happens. After the first of the year, we're going to launch into season 10, which will be a new case that will be in our normal format. The only difference is we'll actually have time to, to produce have more time to produce content and get ahead of ourselves and not be kind of flying by the seat of our pants every week as we have been for five years. Yeah. Five years now we've been doing that. Um, so I hope this works out great for everybody. We've got a space for the, for the folks that want to keep working on Perringer's case to keep doing it. And we've got a space to cover the true crime cases that, that you guys are interested in. And we have some actual space and time to do a lot of the prep work that we just have a hard time getting done because, of, you know, frankly, because of the way our businesses run, you know, we have to produce episodes every week. Some people are like, well, just take a month off. It just doesn't work that way in our industry, in our business, because if we don't produce episodes, then we literally don't get a paycheck. So we have, we, we've got to keep going with that. Uh, we love and appreciate all of you for all of your support and bearing with us. This is a, these are crazy times in this pandemic and, and with Deb passing away, that, that just added to the complications here. But, but we're going to keep dredging forward. And you guys will get a great taste of what the next couple of months are going to look like Two days this Sunday, when I interview Madeline Barron, the host of the In the Dark podcast, where we talk about Curtis Flowers' case. 
Curtis has just been released after 21 years in prison. That's Sunday on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com and like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. If you knew, you would know. And it's funny if you knew. No one else knows. You're ruining our silence. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 